everybody else, but at the end of that last song, does everybody just kind of fade out and just let Wyatt do his thing? I'm just like, yeah, I'm not going to try to go there, right? Well, there are obviously a lot of benefits um, of being a follower of Christ. Um, you know, obviously the fact that um, our sins have been forgiven, past, present, and future. They've been washed in the blood of Christ. We've been set free. We're no longer slaves to sin. We've been adopted into God's family as dearly loved children, unconditionally loved. And we have the presence of the living God inside of us through the Holy Spirit, which acts as a deposit um, on our eternal citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. And I could go on and on about God's graciousness, his kindness and love, and what it means for our life. But after years of following Christ, I also know that this is true, is that it can be really lonely. Living for and testifying to a gospel message that puts us in direct conflict with the ways of this world can feel like you were just constantly swimming upstream. And we've talked about this before. We're, we're constantly fighting this American dream, um, even Christianity, of, of upward mobility. We're constantly fighting this culture of self-reliance and independence, a, a, a culture where truth is, is whatever works for you or makes you feel good, a culture of comfort, a culture of selfish ambition, and the gospel of Jesus Christ puts us in direct opposition to that culture. And what that means is that there are going to be times when people who are living according to the ways of the world don't really want us around, even our Christian friends sometimes. Because the truth is, is that our presence can sometimes remind people of their sin of how lost and drifting they might be in any particular season of life, and they'd rather not have the aroma of Christ that we talked about last week that's in us around, like reminding them of their sinful life. I came to Christ um, as a junior in high school, um, kind of halfway through the year over Christmas break, I went to, to Young Life Ski Camp and became a Christian. And then I came back home, and at the same time, um, that I was doing that, all of my friends who had grown up in church and I'd kind of looked up to all decided that they were going to start partying and that they were done with kind of the church thing. It was great timing. Yeah, awesome. So it was incredibly discouraging for me um, and really lonely because honestly, like that spring semester of my junior year, I'd spent a lot of Friday nights at home because um, I didn't get the invites. Back then, we didn't text it like you actually had called, you know, on the rotary phone. Yeah, didn't get any calls, okay? Um, because people didn't really want Christian Bob around when they were out doing things that they knew were wrong. And um, so it was, it was rough, and maybe you can relate to that. I've seen it happen to my own kids as well. Um, and it's just one of those costs of following Jesus at times. I see loneliness in ministry. Um, a, a lot of pastors, especially, um, Justin and I kind of, not joke about it because it's, <laughs> it's kind of a hard thing sometimes, but during his sabbatical, he actually started taking some notes uh, to someday write a book about that very thing, about loneliness and ministry. And um, I don't know what it is, um, if people may be intimidated to socialize with pastors um, or they feel like we already have it together or whatever, but sometimes people... Um, 
can only be um, interested in us for, for what we can provide for you. So if they want wisdom, if they want counseling, hey, we want uh, to interact with the pastor. But if it's just to kind of check in on us and say, hey, how are you doing? How's your life going? Um, for whatever reason, that, that can be spotty at times. Um, and, and it's almost kind of like this weird assumption, like we don't have the same needs as everybody else for community and companionship. And that loneliness can make it easy to lose heart. And, and it can make it easy to fall prey to discouragement. And it's often how Satan chooses to attack those in leadership. And we certainly see that very same thing in the life of the Apostle Paul as well. At the very end of his writings, the last book that he wrote was 2 Timothy. And in the very last chapter of that book, he makes it very clear. He says, these people have deserted me. These people are intentionally doing things right now to harm my ministry. These people have deserted me in in my greatest hour of need. Uh, Not unlike Christ in his last hours on earth as well. But despite all of that, in 2 Timothy 4.17, Paul wrote this. He said, But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. What a great perspective to have. For the past two weeks, we've been talking about um, the new covenant in Christ and contrasting it to the old covenant Um, This new covenant, this covenant between God and mankind marked by the grace of Jesus Christ instead of the law. And last Sunday I pointed out, really Paul pointed out, um, that we have all been called to be ministers, to be agents of this new covenant, spreading everywhere the aroma of Christ. Every one of us here has been given a role We've been invited onto the team. We've been called out to the playing field um, instead of standing on the sidelines while the priests do all the hard work like they did in the Old Testament. Peter calls it the priesthood of all believers. So the ministry of sharing the love of Christ with the hurting world is a task that all of us have been called to, not just a select few. So I want you to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 4. It's page 1053. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. I'm just going to kind of take it verse at a time here for a minute. Verse 1 says, Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. So the first thing that stood out to me as I read this verse is that we've been given this ministry as a mercy. It's undeserved. And so we we approach it with this spirit of this posture of humility. We didn't earn it, but it's been granted to us as a mercy. And and it's it's been granted to us um, because a couple things. One is it's meant to refine and shape our character. Being a minister of this new covenant, going out and stretching ourselves and, and, and kind of sticking our neck out there to proclaim the, the, the love of Christ changes us, it challenges us, it stretches us. God refines us as we participate in that. 
and also to bring the life-giving message of Christ to a hurting world. So both those things. But did you notice uh, that Paul didn't speak this phrase as a suggestion? He doesn't say, try not to lose heart. He doesn't say, you shouldn't lose heart. He said, we do not lose heart. It's a command, right? It's a directive. He's saying, guys, we don't have another option here. He says it again in verse 16. If you were to flip ahead, you would see he says that same phrase. Why? Because he knows that we're prone to do just that. Why, why do we tend to lose heart? You tell me. Maybe even like in ministry experiences, maybe that you've had, but just in life in general, really. Yeah. Things don't meet our expectations. Yes. Yeah. Lack of support. Okay. Yeah. What else? What's that? Failure. I can't hear you. Failure. Failure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All the people around us are losing heart. Yeah. There's a culture of heart losing. Couldn't come up with a great word there. Um, right. I, I think, um, man, y'all hit it on the head. Those are great. I mean, I think a lot of times it's, it's just this, um, it's usually tied to unmet expectations. Right? We get into ministry, we're doing things, and we think, man, if I just teach this awesome lesson, or if I serve enough and love this person enough, or if I give enough, or whatever it might be, I ought to expect certain results, success at some level, whatever that looks like, maybe even a pat on the back or some recognition. But it rarely goes that way if you've been in the game long enough. I thought this was interesting. The Greek word Paul used here for lose heart means, in the original Greek, having a faint-hearted cowardice. And it has the connotation of not only a lack of courage, but of then that lack of courage resulting in bad behavior and evil conduct. <laughs> so it's when we, when we lose heart, where does that tend to take us is kind of what this is getting at. Let's look at verse 2. So he says, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways we do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So Paul digs in here, and really what he's doing is he's really kind of exposing some of the abuses that he's seen of other ministers in Corinth. I want you to look back at chapter 2, verse 17. 2.17 says, unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. So we have to keep in mind that when Paul wrote 2 Corinthians, that the Gospels had not been written yet. So nobody was carrying around a New Testament 
when the next pastor teacher came to town and, and said, here's what Jesus said about how we should do whatever, nobody could say, oh, yeah, let me look that up and make sure that's exactly the right thing. No, they didn't have that. All they still had at this point was word of mouth. All they had was maybe a copy of a letter that Paul might have written somebody in some town, and maybe they passed it on to the next town that had maybe some theology in it or some teachings of Christ in there. But for the most part, it was a a really dangerous time. It was really hard for them to know when somebody was adding to or taking away from something that Jesus actually said or did. In the second half of verse 2, Paul then is contrasting himself from the ministry of others. He says that, that we came and we spoke the truth plainly. And he said we did it with integrity. And most importantly, he says he does it in the sight of God. So basically what he's saying is he's like, ultimately I know that I'm going to have to stand before the throne of God and give an account for how I stewarded this message. And I'm telling you that I, I'm standing before him with a clear conscience, him and you. Look at verse 3. He says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. So, to understand this verse, you kind of have to know the whole story behind both letters to the Corinthians. Okay? So, suffice it to say that the, the church in Corinth was rough, and it led to a lot of heartache for Paul. He, he was constantly um, just getting beat up there, and it was honestly the church that nobody wanted to pastor because of how corrupt it was. So when Paul says, even if our gospel is veiled, what he's alluding to there is criticism that he had received that he wasn't as good of a communicator as some other guys that had come through town, that, that the number of converts that Paul brought from his teaching wasn't as much as this guy over here who was more dynamic. So I want you to flip back, hold your, hold your spot there, and flip back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Starting in verse 1, Paul said, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power." So Paul basically is admitting to them, guys, you're right. I am not as smooth as some of these other guys that are coming through town. But he says, if people respond to my teaching, then they're likely to stick because that's a demonstration of God's power, not my own, because I'm not that persuasive, not that wise, okay? And for me, that passage kind of cuts away all excuses that we might come up with for not wanting to embrace this role as being a minister of the gospel. When some of you guys have gotten up here before to share maybe your testimony or a story or maybe just to give an announcement, sometimes you tell us, I'm really nervous, I'm like shaking. Other times we see it, okay, when you get up here. 
But you know what Paul would say to you? He would say, join the club, right? Join the club. But his nervousness and fear and lack of speaking ability didn't keep him from fulfilling God's mission in his life. What it made him do is rely on God's strength and not his own. Focusing on God's ability and not Paul's own perceived lack of skill in that area or talent. So next time you're asked to do something outside of your comfort zone in ministry, right? Remember Paul's story here. Take courage that if God has laid something on your heart, he will meet you there and give you what you need and provide the strength and ability for you to do that. It doesn't mean it's not going to be scary. It doesn't mean you're not going to be fearful, whatever. But he'll, he'll meet you there. You can do it. I love it when I ask people to come and share at the church, you know. Hey, I'd be, I'd, I think it'd be really great for you to share your story. Okay, I'll pray about that. I'm like, you don't need to pray about it. That's what God asks us to do is to share the things that God has done in our life. So his answer is yes. I mean, you can go pray if you want, but that's what he wants you to do. So, so you know, if I ask you, you're done, right? Another thing that I want to mention here is that when we speak the truth of God plainly, we should expect that it's not going to go well a fair amount of the time. People will reject it, sometimes vocally, sometimes passively, and it can discourage us if we're not careful. How many times have you given a friend what you know is sound biblical advice, and they've chosen to ignore it and to do what they want to do anyways? How many of you have done that in your life, right? Sometimes maybe they even throw it back in your face, because Really, at the root of a lot of people, it's like, they just want you to tell them what they want to hear. They're not really that interested in the truth. They just want you to kind of justify the course of action they already want to take. And we live in a culture where truth is relative. I, I, I went on this trip a couple weeks ago. I told you guys about I was going to Chicago with some other folks from Care Portal. So it was a, a group of leaders, several pastors on this trip, and we were having a conversation about um, some subject matter that's, that's pretty controversial in our culture today, and at times it was a little bit tense in the room. And I made this comment that it seems like a rarity anymore to confidently speak what is biblically true. Whether it's popular or politically correct or anything, because sometimes things are just true, whether people like it or not. And when we speak the truth in love, which is a really important piece of that, right? Jesus said, so we speak the truth in love. When we speak the truth in love around controversial topics and people reject or criticize us, we have to remember that it's God that they have a problem with, not us. We didn't come up with the rules, And we have to be reminded of that and not take that personally and allow it to cause us to lose heart. Take a look at verse 4. We're going to read 4 through 6 here. He says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 
For what we preach is not ourselves, but Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let their light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. So in verse 4, we have to remember that Paul is speaking from very personal experience. Right? As, a, as a Pharisee, he was highly trained, highly educated in, in the Old Testament, Old Covenant law. I mean, he was teaching and training other people on that topic. And he knew all of the biblical prophecies about the Savior that was supposed to come to the nation of Israel. But when Jesus came and Paul happened to be alive during that time and saw with his own eyes the ministry and the teaching of Jesus, he still rejected it. Why? He not only rejected it, he also persecuted it and tried to kill people who were talking about it because Satan had blinded him. Paul was blinded by his own ambition by the prestige and the notoriety that, that the Pharisees, that these religious leaders got as leaders in the church and society, the Jesus way threatened all of that because the Pharisees loved putting on a show, right? You read about in the Gospels, it says they love wearing their fancy robes and they love to have the best seats at church and, and the civic functions in, in society. They loved the attention they received and the power that they had over people. And then Jesus comes along, God in the flesh. Somebody who has, if anybody has the right to have prestige and power in society, it'd be him. And he, what does he do? He lays that all aside. He washes the disciples' feet. He lays his life down for us. And the whole time he's turning the, the, the picture of what power looks like on its head. He's turning it upside down. And that's a threat to the Pharisees. Paul had been on his way to Damascus to round up Christians and to, and to put them into jail when God met him on that road and blinded him literally and chose him to be the messenger to the Gentiles. And you see this huge shift in Paul after that. And verse 5 kind of puts it on display. Paul says, it's not about me. It's all about Jesus, and we are servants for your sake. And that is a huge change in the message, in the lifestyle of Paul from before. And it shows the importance in this balance that we have to have between teaching and serving. They, they, those things have to go hand in hand. That's really how Jesus' ministry began. If you see it in the book of Matthew, early on, it says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Again, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. Teaching and healing, teaching and healing. You see it. What are the dangers in not having that balance? So let's start with all teaching and no healing. What's the danger in that? And raise your hand. It's okay. Yeah, Stace. Okay. People wonder if you walk the talk. Is it just words, right? Hmm? 
Okay, so you're not, not, people aren't seeing if the words are being manifested in your life, in your heart. Yeah. What else? Anything else? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Fill that in. Make it, make it be awesome. Yeah, she just talked about the Pharisees and the way the Pharisees kind of were. They were really concerned with teaching everybody about things, but then they weren't as concerned about, you know, the plight of of the lepers and the disease and the marginalized people in society. They didn't dig into those things like Jesus did, right? So those words were hollow. That's what Sam, yeah, that's what she meant to say. Yeah, good. What's, what about the opposite? What's the danger of all healing and no teaching? Yeah, Bob? Okay. Okay, yeah, it can be just a one-time thing and they don't know how to, to handle the next problem that come, might come about in their life. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, Rich? Yeah, okay, you always look at the next experience. Apart from some foundation in our life that, of what is true, right, then we're just looking for the next experience. Yeah, you're on fire today, Chris. <laughs> like with like, if it's too much healing, I'm going to start glorifying the person. I guess mm. that's doing it. And yeah. Start looking at the dead person. Okay. Yeah, if there's too much healing, then maybe we start glorifying the person who's doing the healing instead of the God who provides the healing, right? Great. Good job. And so I think it's maybe important even for you to kind of ask, where do you tend to lean one side or the other on that in your life and your own experience and the way that you meet the needs of people around you? Are you a person that likes to talk about the Bible a lot? Are you really knowledgeable and teaching, but maybe you, you shy away from digging in and getting yourself, you know, your hands a little messy in people's broken lives? Are you one of those bleeding hearts that loves to just get in there and love everybody and care for them? And, but, but sometimes we need to confront a, a friend with the truth. You kind of shy away from that because they, they might get hurt. Oh, my gosh, they might not like me, right? I'm saying that sarcastically because that's not me, obviously. <laughs> Finally, in verse 6, Paul makes it clear that in order for us to see Christ for who he truly is, God has to shine his light in our hearts. So it's his work in us. There's nothing that we can take credit for figuring out. John 15, 16 says this. There's a slide up there. It says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. I love that, man. You didn't choose me. I chose you. You don't have an option. <laughs> what does this all mean for us? Are, are we understanding the message here, what Paul's trying to communicate? Because, guys, what he's trying to say, I think, is this, is that we don't get to be Christians on our terms. We don't get to be Christians on our terms. We are not passive recipients 
who get to choose what our faith journey looks like. We are all a called and sent people. Every one of us is a minister, agent, ambassador, everyone, whatever tag you want to put on it. We all spread everywhere the aroma of Christ to this world, every last one of us. We, you, are the face of Christ in this world to those that are lost and perishing. Whether you want to be or not, that's what you are. So, do we go about our days with this sense of calling and purpose? Do we wake up every morning preparing our hearts and minds to live in that way towards the world? I want you to turn your Bibles. One last thing here. First Peter. First Peter chapter 4. It's page 1111. 1111. Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, writes this in 1 Peter 4, 11. He says, if anyone speaks... They should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? That when I get up here on Sunday morning... I am speaking the very words of God. When you're in that conversation with somebody who's struggling or wrestling or you're confronting them with the truth, you are speaking the very words of God. Guys, if we're running from our calling or we're shying away from it in some way, or simply too wrapped up in the world to pay much attention to our calling, we have to start asking ourselves the question, why? What are the lies that we're believing? Where are we allowing Satan to distract us or to distort us or to rob that calling that he has in our life? Because, guys, there is too much at stake. There are too many people in this world who are lost and perishing, who are settling for a broken life now, and are risking a life of eternal separation from God for us to be complacent or passing the buck of responsibility off to the professional Christians, the pastors, the church staff, the leaders, the people we perceive to be more talented or more confident than we are. I need to remind you guys that Paul said that when he spoke, he did so in weakness, great fear, and trembling. Yet he was the most influential Christian the the world has probably ever known. God's not looking for superstars. He's looking for willing and faithful people who believe 
and a God who has unbelievable power to do extraordinary things through you. We're going to screw it up. It's going to be lonely at times. We're going to want to lose heart, right? We're going to be attacked and criticized, but that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus and to have a ministry to be ministers of the new covenant. That's our calling. And we do not lose heart in that. That's a command, guys. It's not a choice. So we got to figure out how not to do that. And I was thinking about communion this morning. And I was thinking about the Last Supper. At the very time when Jesus knows this is the last meal that he's eating. And he knows what's going to happen to him the next day. And he's the only one in the room that's clued into that. And he's breaking this bread and he's pouring out this wine in the midst of a disciple who's already betrayed him, who's already left the room to go for 30 pieces of silver to turn Jesus in. He's already told another disciple, you're going to disown me in the next few hours. He's looking around at the movement. (laughs) Guys, just a few chapters later, even after his resurrection and appearance to over 500 people, there are only 120 people left following Jesus in Jerusalem. You want to talk about uh, somebody that could really lose heart. That could have been really discouraging. But what does he do? It says that he takes the bread and he breaks it and he gives thanks. Despite what looked like failure on the surface, he gave thanks. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this, this calling on our life. We, we, we thank you because it's a mercy to us, God. Because you know that if we just stand on the sidelines and let other people do it, that we won't experience you the way you want us to experience you. We won't be changed. We won't be shaped. Last week we talked about that you are, are committed to transforming us with ever-increasing glory into the image of your Son. And the only way to do that is to be in the game, be in the fight. We got to be roughed up a little bit to learn some things. I thank you, Lord, that even in the midst of what could have been discouraging times for you, that you, you gave thanks <laughs> because you knew that, that really your call here on earth was to, was to be faithful, was to, was to finish the mission that you'd been called to, which was to lay down your life and The cross looked like complete failure. But what it was in reality was complete victory. So God, I pray that we would not just look at our life and the things that we try to do uh, for you and for others based on just human eyes of what we can see, but we would be more concerned with just being faithful to, to trusting in you and your power and not our own skill so that we can just continue to spread everywhere this aroma of Christ that the world is so desperate to be in touch with. God, we give you this time as we come to the communion table this morning. We just quiet our hearts. We, we just want to talk to you. We want to confess. We want to hear from you. We want to thank you.
and prepare ourselves to receive your body and your blood so that we can go out and be the ministers that you want us to be.